Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for being here for this episode with Susan Kendall from Evolve Beyond Grief. Susan suffered multiple primary losses in a really short span of time and just shares with us her experience, her thoughts and feelings, and also how she has felt called to the work of grief education, just the passion behind that, which I really relate to. You're also going to hear her dog in the background. It was sort of a crummy day when we were recording, and I assured her that our community could handle a couple of dog barks. Also, if you are loving the podcast and listening regularly and wouldn't mind jumping over to Apple Podcast to give us a five-star rating, it helps other people find the podcast. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am delighted to have Susan Kendall here with me today. We have been, as the world allows us to, chatting and getting to know each other over the interwebs, basically raging about certain topics that are not being done well. And she and I, look for it, are going to do an Instagram live to talk about some of what's going on in the new iteration of Sex in the City and TV in general. But right now, I am really excited to introduce you to my listeners and your work. So Susan, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for having me on. And I have to tell you, I've been on various podcasts and news reports and whatever, but with you listening to your podcast, I feel like I'm going to get a little therapy today. (laughs) Thank you. I don't know if that's a compliment. I am such a talker. Every time I finish an episode, I'm like, God, Megan, why do you talk so much? So I think I even changed the description of the podcast as a discussion so that people wouldn't be disappointed when they discover I'm not really an interviewer. I'm just really a talker. Well, great. I I would love for us to just dive in. And, you know, I always work under the assumption that nobody knows anybody. So if you could just tell us your story, how do you come into the grief world and maybe even about your platform and your work? Sure. So I really came into the grief world when about 10 weeks after I got married, I was married very young to my high school sweetheart at the age of 21. And my best man, best friend and brother-in-law died tragically at the age of 18 in a car accident. So that was my, you know, aside from the natural order of grieving grandparents, he was really my true first lesson in grief. And I continued on with my life, obviously a little changed. My husband and I definitely raised our children a little bit differently because we knew that it was a possibility that you can lose a child. And, but pan to 30 something years later at the age of 53, I lost my husband suddenly, he was 54. He just died of of a heart attack and I found him. And so I, at that point, I had three 20-something children. One was married. One was living with her boyfriend, who's now her husband and daddy to their two children. And my youngest was actually away. And we had to wait for her to get back from the Middle East in order to have 
the funeral and life began. Obviously, horrific, horrible, everything you can ever imagine. But at the time, my father was dealing with cancer and heart disease, actually to the point where uh, most people thought it was my dad that had passed and not my husband. Oh my God. But within, I don't know, a year of that, maybe it was two years, my dad passed. Yeah. And, and sadly, about six months later, completely unexpected again, I lost my eldest brother, who was my, my true remaining rock. And at the time, one of the reasons why we were so close was because we had always been close. We were, there's a huge age difference and we just um, had a very special bond that we were dealing with my senior mother, who was now a widow, and also my other brother who was going through early onset dementia at the time. Oh my God. How long ago was this, Susan? How long? Um, well, my brother... The second brother, they're all older than me, but the second brother um, passed from early onset dementia at the age of 64, two years ago. Wow. So in the span of five years, I truly lost, sorry, all the rocks. Love dogs. We love dogs here on this podcast. We lost my main, well, the rocks of of my foundation all came tumbling down you know, my men, my, my loves, my everything. And so my, my voyage with grief has been a little bit different than others, just because there's been so much. Yeah. And there's been some that have taken a longer time. And then like my brother or my father who was cancer and heart disease And also because different relationships, you know, a father, a relationship of losing a father or a brother or brother-in-law, they're all very different. Yeah. And each time, obviously, I try to get up and support those, you know, my brother's wives and and my mother and and my children and everybody. So it's COVID really became a time for me to sit. Yeah. In my calmness, I was forced into stillness. Yeah. And that's when I had been thinking for a while about doing something yeah. because my background is writing and public relations. And, and I knew I had to do something to honor these men and to help me. So I took coaching classes and I became mm-hmm. a grief educator. But the most important thing I think I did for me was I began what I call now evolve beyond grief. Yeah. Initially, it was supposed to be a widow's group for widows who were trying to move forward, but I quickly realized my grief is, is much more than just a widow's. Yep. And I really kept going, you know, I didn't want to open up and open my voice because it's very vulnerable. Yeah. And, you know, Brene Brown has certainly helped me, but so did uh, one of the women who I coached, we co-coached each other as part of the course. And she kept saying, do it, write, write, do it, just write it to me, send it to me. And I sent it to her and she gave me the courage to open up and begin. What I really started writing about was that I realized 
we have the most beautiful coaching community and, and griefing community, mm. all of us who are online. But I see so many who are more on Facebook, interestingly enough, more people on Facebook who talk, obviously, behind a mask, behind the privacy. Yeah. And what they're all saying, no matter who they grieve and how long they grieve, is I'm writing to this group because my friends and family and coworkers will no longer listen. They don't want to hear me. They keep trying to fix it and telling me to get over it. And I, and I realized that for me, my dream would be to educate society more on death, because truly when you talk and learn about death, you appreciate life more. Yeah. Um, so to, to learn about death, to learn about grief, to learn how to talk to someone who's grieving, to understand what to say, what not to say, to write a first will in high school. So that's really what I'm trying to work toward, but it's taking time. And I think I need this beautiful community like you to work with me. And we all work together on this because the knowledge and the intelligence and the beauty of the people that I'm meeting is One of the things that I appreciate so much about the grief community is it, it, and this is not always true, but it's so often true is that, you know, everybody is so grateful for each other because exactly what you're describing, which is it's really stunning. You know, if you and I wanted to become formula one race car drivers, there's probably more information on how to do that readily available to us and people to call, then the concept around like, what is, what is grief, right? You have sudden loss, you have anticipated loss. They are different in their format and then they're different in their relationships. And then they're all in this short span of time. Like, I mean, this with so much compassion, you are an expert in loss in a way that everybody should be asking you. I mean, I have a million questions be- and, and an open book. Right, right. And, and completely an open book. What ha- and what happens is, you know, the grievers are sort of left to kind of scramble up a mountain to try to figure out what's going to work well for them. What I talk about and, and what I write a lot about is sort of like, listen, we're going to coach you, but you, the way you get coached by a golf coach, but like you have to become the golfer. So there's a very wide variety of things that grievers can tell you, which is why one book might not resonate at all and another one does, but they're both incredibly important to have because it's like a fingerprint. Everybody's different. I would love to ask you, where were your handrails in that successive experience? Like, how did you manage? What were your tools? A lot of nervous energy. Okay. So like anxiety? <laughs> no, not anxiety, not anxiety at all. Just energy. Go, 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 go. Don't think, just deal. Okay. Was so hustling around, moving around, deal. just keep going. Yeah, because I was the executor on my dad's estate, my husband's estate, and I was helping my sister-in-law on her estate. And I was actually doing a divorce for my brother with Alzheimer's during all of this. Like it, it just... It was, it was just doing, 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 doing. And a cousin of mine said to me early on, she said, 
you know you're not stopping and you're not sleeping because you don't want to sit and think. And I said, yeah, I know, I know. And that's again, why with COVID all of a sudden it was like, oh, I have nothing to do but sit and think you know, do you feel cool. like you could have, you know, one of the, this isn't, you didn't say this, so I'm extrapolating from what you said, but what I hear from a lot of grievers that I work with is just like the, the commentary, right? Like the people in the cheap seats who want to say like, oh, well, you're not stopping or you're not doing it this way, or you're doing too much of this. Do you feel like, let's say the world's most foremost expert on grief comes in and says, Susan, you really need to stop doing all this executor stuff in, and, and sit and address your grief. Could you have done that? Was that even a possibility? No, I, wasn't, I wasn't able to because they were just coming on too fast. Yeah. So I, I had to deal with what I had to deal with, but I did notice almost like I was floating above. Yeah. By the time I was dealing with my brothers, I noticed that you know, in order for a surgeon, I'm assuming to do surgery on an open body, they have to sort of um, separate their yeah. emotions from the technical. And I could feel myself actually doing that and knowing I will get to the emotions when I need to, or when I have to, but right now I have to deal with my siblings and their loved ones. You know, my brother left some young children and, and I had to deal with all of that. Yeah. So I knew the time was going to come when I, and I did grieve for my husband, you know, that, that I had, that I did for sure. Never enough, but I did. But for the others, I knew I just had to plow through, do what I needed to do, sort of compartmentalize my brain and that in time I could, but I promise you on the weekends, often after seeing my brother who was belted down arms and legs to a bed at times I would go home shut the door <clears throat> shut the lights and just try to get the vision out of my mind yeah yeah god that sounds brutal I feel like in grief our minds tag back to a couple of really difficult memories or a couple of and it just feels like you just shared one of those with the, with us, which is like the image of your brother. So incapacitated is really, you know, one of the ones where all the, the feeling collects. And I think you're describing in this really concrete way, what we know, and that is often kind of defined as problematic. And when people come into my office, or even when I have them on the podcast, I'm like, yeah, no, that's your body's way of titrating out how much you can handle. I remember feeling so grateful I had work to do in between the day my dad died and his funeral. And people were like, you're going to work. And I was like, shut up. It's helping. Whereas when my mom died, I couldn't have gone to work if you told me I needed to, to feed babies. There's no way I couldn't even put clothes on. And there was a lot of all that mechanism and you're nodding and grievers always nod the funeral stuff, all the stuff they need at the, at the funeral home. I had this ridiculous event happen where, you know, the people were asking me how many brownies did we want to order? And I just had a nervous breakdown in front of you know, all the people in aisle seven in the grocery store. But there is a lot of stuff that needs to be done, which is almost like the equivalent of being the, on the battlefield. You're not going to sit around and feel how you 
feel about being afraid. You're going to feel all that fear later because that's how our bodies are built. We're actually built to do that. When you're, when you become a widow, especially, you know, a a youngish widow, you have no idea how awful it's going to be. You are dealing with this moment. You're dealing with fearing for your children, you know, and how they will handle it. Had someone told me about all the residual stress and anxiety that would continue year after year, I never would have known, nor would I probably have been able to face it. I don't know what I would have done. You know, it's, 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 I mean, it's brutal out there in society. And when people come to me now, I I meet widows all the time and they'll say, oh, my friends are so wonderful. My friends are special. My friends will be with me forever. They've been, you know, and I'm like, okay, but I know, I know come a year, come two years, even two and a half years, if they're very blessed, they will no longer be saying that. That's right. They are no longer the flavor of the week. That's right. And it will end. So I've learned to just keep my mouth shut because they don't need to know. They can't handle the, the, the reality of what's going to happen. And I just keep telling them, I am here for you. When you need me, I'm back. I'm here. And that's, you know, and, and slowly, slowly, because you don't want to admit that you've gone from being, you know, a person who's lost someone to a person who's being held up by your family and friends to a person who's sinking lower and lower as time goes on. So that's why I'm always trying to reach out later and going, I'm here. Now I'm here well, and, and one of the things that happens so quickly, right, is all that sense of isolation. I have this bizarre sort of, I've done a lot of grief and loss work as my clinical work. Then I have my experience of grief and loss. And then I come back out to the other side and do some clinical work. And then we have COVID. So there's this sense of like the theme of isolation. You know, I felt very relieved when the world shut back down and that everyone was sort of in a panic because I felt like I've been sitting on the street corner for a while. I can show you around. I've been over here isolated and feeling lonely in a way that makes me feel crazy normally think of myself as an upbeat person, but I didn't have access to that part of me at all. And I was furious about it. And I was furious at other people about it. And so then I didn't want to eat my friends and family alive. So I was just pulling back and pulling back. I got, I got a lot of therapy because that's my world. But what I know is that what many people get is a lot of feeling of judgment, a lot of feeling like they have exhausted their friends. And that's so heartbreaking because I really believe there's a lot of love between you and your friend. That friend is just like, okay, I feel helpless. And, and they do start judging. They start saying like, well, you know, she's been really upset for a year and she won't even go on a date. And a lot of that goes back to the core misunderstanding of, you know, what is it that we are supposed to be expecting because the supposed to be is this incredibly wide range of experiences. And I will tell you this. So I do a lot of the academic study of the theories and all that stuff because I write about some of it. There are some numbers out there that make me crazy. And I'm not trying to say that I question 
the, the studies, except I question the studies. What they say is 60% of people will go through the grief process and not need any support other than what's available to them. And I have not met a single human that I believe that that is the case of. I have not met a single person across cultures who is like, you know what? I felt a hundred percent supported and connected. And I don't mean didn't have bad feeling. Of course, they're going to have feeling. Most of what happens in grief and loss, all of our experiences are coded in our brains, right? So if I'm picking up this iced coffee, I already know what it's going to taste like because I've had it before. And the way that the brain codes information is kind of like in these little pockets or these drawers. So you have terrible, terrible tragedy at 18 already in the drawer. Then your husband, it's all in the drawer. No one can possibly tell you how you are supposed to grieve that. You are the only expert in what that is. And what the educational process has left people who love you misunderstanding is that you are the expert and the inventor of what that process looks like. Mm -hmm. And that it's not for anyone to judge. I mean, that would be like people judging my skincare regime. You don't have my skin. You have no idea what it's like to have my skin. You just know what you see on the outside. I know one of your podcasts, you asked whether or not, whether or not the author feels like she's, she's talking too much about grief. Like when do you stop talking about it? When is it over? When is it not? And I feel very much that society has, I mean, it's not a feeling I know society has said to us, okay, that's it. It's over. And different cultures and different traditions and different religions give and take a little bit more, but okay, you're done now get over it. You know, why aren't you doing this? Why are you talking about it still? It's not healthy. And it's not because the people aren't good. And that's my whole premise. People are good, people are kind. And it's not only because they're scared. I don't think that's the driving force because people do a lot of things that they're afraid to do. And some of those things are, are considered exciting. I think what it is, is that we have been taught as a society what to say. And that's what we think is right. And what I thought was right before I lost. So totally much. agree with that. I still find it awkward. And exactly. I'm, yes. And people come to me all the time. And that's why I took, I didn't take the coaching to have a career in coaching. I don't want no, to. I, coaching. I didn't take the um, death educator course to have a career in death education. I took it so that one, I would learn about me more because I wanted to go to the experts And two, so that I could help others. And when I write, I wouldn't make huge, horrible mistakes. Right. And what I learned, and I was very nervous when I took the Death Educators course, because I thought, you know, I'm going up against psychiatrists and psychologists and and what I'm in PF. You know, it's not quite the same. But very quickly, I I was taught that my learned education can go up against any of their stuff any day. Any day. I have a lot to give. And now I just know and understand sort of what it is. It's got a name. My my thoughts now have names and I understand what they are. And I can talk with someone like you who's more educated at a higher level. We can connect quicker because I understand what you mean by the terminology. That's right. But I, and I don't think you can teach anybody the pain of grief because you can't. 
but you can just like you can teach thankfully about same-sex marriage and respecting yep. that and respecting mental health issues and, and, and Black Lives Matter, all the things, you know what? You can learn how to respect them. One of the things that I look at our society and I'm like, well done team, is the notion of how we look at the gender equation, right? Really quickly, what we learned was children are literally killing themselves at a higher rate because we cannot make room for them. And okay, listen, I understand that not everybody would like to make room for them, but the general population was like, just tell me what symbol to put on the bathroom so so that we stop causing you pain. So I actually know the thing that you and I are talking about, which is having a core level grief, like understanding of, of what to expect about grief. And I'll say something about that in a second is not too much to ask. I think the reason that we don't is because, and I say this all the time, it's awkward. It's really awkward. And we don't like feeling awkward and helpless. And so what I say to people is all I do all day is talk about grief, read about grief, write about grief. And it's awkward for me too. It's not supposed to not be awkward. When you are calling someone who has just had a loss, it is uncomfortable because you don't want to be in the pain I think the difference is it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable because you're a human and you care and you have compassion. But I don't know if it's awkward. I'm much less feeling awkward to talk to someone who is, you know, going through grief or, or anticipating grief or whatever. I'm emotional. I care for them, but I don't know if you're awkward about it because you've learned. I, I like that you're quite, I, but I, I would tell you, I think I am. So I like that you're like, no, and maybe it's because I have some social awkwardness, like a little bit of that anxiety, but when I'm picking up the phone to call a friend who has been through a loss or stepping at their door, I have anxiety in my chest and I say stupid shit first. I'm like, oh, are you? I mean, even though I write about this, I literally give people cards that are like, say these things so that it's not so hard. It's still a little bit of a bumble and a fumble to get it rolling. I just don't feel like I feel graceful. I still feel like, ah, this is because uncomfortable to me sort of feels like, am I making the space that you need in this moment? Am I holding the space well? That to me sort of feels like I want everyone to be comfortable, but I know that there are moments where I'm like, oh Jesus, they don't need me to be saying this stuff. I still do the thing where I'm like, I can feel the words coming out of my mouth and I cannot shut my mouth. I can't stop saying the stupid stuff that we tell people not to say. And I feel like that's important to, as a so-called expert in this, to tell people because when we feel awkward, and uncomfortable in that way, we often are like, well, I'm not doing that again. Our job, I imagine you've had these conversations so many times with, with such good intent that you're, I don't know, more graceful with it, which I, you know, I like, I like the, I like the distinguishing in it. Will you tell us a little bit about how did people support you in ways that were helpful? Was anyone able to do something where you're like, wow, that really surprised me. Or did it mostly feel like, damn it, I wish people had showed up different. When my husband died, I mean, I was comatose. Like I just, it came out of nowhere. And I, I just, it was awful. And there were a lot of, you know, 
there were a lot of extenuating issues that I had to deal with because it was my husband and he had a practice and I had to deal with the practice for 10 months and he was a dentist. So I had to go in and take care of that. And it was just, there was so much going on. Plus my father was still going for his, you know, cancer treatments monthly with me. The things that were the most special were the little moments. People uh, were just, drop off a coffee, come to the door, talk, listen, be there with me. So I wasn't so alone. You know, family offered to come help me do things. My brother was starting to get sick. He was losing his words. That was the first thing that happened with the early onset. He came to me and he said, I want to help you. So he would go into my backyard and cut branches that had grown too long along my fence because he wanted to do something so desperately. And that kindness and sweetness in his soul, I mean, the kindness was just immeasurable that people did. Friends invited me up to their cottage to stay for a couple of days and, and understood that I wasn't talking, you know, or they would invite me with my children and we would just be together, quiet, not talking, not really being part of anything. And we weren't judged. With my family, as it moved along, I have one friend who I still thank her. My dad died December 24th, which was obviously Christmas Eve. It was also the first night of Hanukkah, which happens like four times in the last 100 years. And it was massive ice storms and everybody was gone. You know, it was Christmas. Right. And my friends drove in two and a half hours in pure ice to come and be with me. And I mean, it was foolish. They should not have done it. But boy, do I remember that. It was just because it was very, we, the, it was very quiet. Everybody was gone. And just having them come was like, oh, and I remember it's funny, but when my brother-in-law died, I remember my brother was out of town with his wife. And I remember they stopped, they came in earlier than expected. They dropped their vacation to come. Yeah. And that feeling of my brother and his wife coming in to be with me and just that they dropped everything for me, it was just huge. It's just yeah. those personal touches. And, and actually, funny enough, it's been seven years. I got a Facebook message, I don't know, two days ago from someone who said, I, you know, my husband dated her sister when she was like 15. I mean, you know, and she said, I don't know if you remember me, but I can't believe I just heard, I don't know why, but they just heard. And she's told me a memory she had. Memories are like little pieces of treasure. And people think they don't want to talk about the person. They're gonna, they think for some reason we forget, I don't know. But when you can come up with a new memory oh, for me to gift. cherish in my in my memory banks, oh, it's the biggest gift, the greatest gift. And photos, right? Like when someone sends you a photo of your loved one at a time when they were alive and you weren't there, it's just this. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you were talking about that word kindness, and it was it, what it was making me think of was just how beautifully painful those sorts of things were. That you know, the people who 
very gently, really genuinely wanted to know if I was doing okay. Your tears are always in those early, early days are right there anyway, but that the, that's what would destroy me. Like my daughter's history teacher sending me an email. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. There are some things that are true about bodies in trauma and grief is a trauma, a sudden loss is a trauma that I feel like, you know, I want that to be the kind of curriculum that people learn that your memory and your eating and your sleeping and, you know, your ability to like do multiple step. I do these lectures and people are like, wait a minute, can you go back to how you can't do three things in a row? Because for a year I couldn't do three, or can you go back and tell me about why I had diarrhea after my son Can I tell you, my daughter, my daughter has some learning disabilities and I'm, I like to multitask. So I cannot understand, I could never, ever understand why if she was going upstairs to do something, she didn't gather all the things and carry them up. And then my husband died. And I had to take one at a time upstairs, knowing that there were other things that I needed to take upstairs, but my brain could not handle the load to think of what those other things were. And that was the day I said, okay, I'm never going to question her again because she can't do it. She cannot do it. I threw my American Express card away six times and I still don't have an American Express card because they won't give me one because they were like, we don't really trust you. We think it was a fraud situation. But the most powerful lecture that I give which, you know, I'm not a brain scientist. So this is just me really taking what I know from being a trauma therapist and translating it gently because it took me like 10 years to kind of learn this stuff so that I can just talk about it. But there are different features in your brain that do not function because they were essentially hit by a gong and they don't, it takes a long time for them to calm down. And the way that you see it is people don't sleep the way they used to. They don't eat the way they used to. They can't make memory. I mean, I sat with my mom after my dad died and she was like, wait a minute, so what happened? And we wrote it out. We wrote out sort of like the year of him dying. And then both of us were like, yeah, I still can't do it. Like we wrote it out by pulling emails and texts and and she was like, okay, good. Now I now I remember. But our brains, both of us, it all, we only remembered for about 40 seconds and I remember everything. I mean, my memory is the thing that makes me a good therapist is that if I attend, it collects everything like a sponge, not the years of the civil war, but like the name of your childhood dog. So I give these lectures and I give them in business settings. And I have seen guys over zoom with the little tears pricking in their eyes, because what we have told people is you're, you're failing because you're having all of these strong reactions. And I'm telling you that the body's reactions is one of the few things that goes across cultures. If you are part of an island community that that believes in reincarnation and has a spiritual practice where everyone stays together in a tent for 90 days, you may not actually experience some of the grief processes that we in a Western culture feel, or you may have different ones worried that they're going to be tormented in the heavens in a way that Christians don't, but bodies are still bodies. And so we take in this information, our brain sends signals down to our body, our body sends signals back down up to our brain. And there's about 10 things that people are like, wait a minute, that's just me grieving. I thought that was me kind of failing. I thought I was all fucked up. And 
Yar. Your body is all, I mean, my mom died two and a half years ago and I I'm being careful to say now, because I'm also like going through menopause and things that I just don't sleep the way that I used to. I'm trying to say that with less judgment, even of myself. I thought I was going to go back to sleeping the way that I used to, which was not even great before my mom died, but I'm coming to understand to kind of full circle us that the griever that I have grown into my life, this whole other part of me, the same way that I grew into being a parent when I had my daughter, I'm a griever now with the deaths of my parents, that griever does not sleep. She doesn't, she doesn't get a lot of great sleep. She sleeps enough, but not the way I used to. And that's also true when I had babies, I used to sleep more when then I had babies. I didn't sleep so much. It may continue to evolve, but that's the metaphor that I use for people is you need to see grief, like becoming a parent. There's no going back. I'm not failing because I'm not sleeping and I'm not doing something wrong because I'm worried. I'm just adjusting to this totally life-changing experience. And what I would say is slightly different about grieving is like with kids, you have one kid, two kids, three kids, four kids. By the time you get to the fourth kid, you're sort of like, ah, it's fine. You know, that's the way he sleeps and he hasn't eaten any vegetables in four days, but I'm not worried. With grief, you don't really have that. You have the understanding that it's not going to kill you, but you know, you do have to grieve your brother differently than you grieve your husband. But and you but have to grieve because, them each individually. You can't clamp yeah. them together. So it's just more work and more time. Yeah. And more and more triggers. Yes. <laughs> and it is work. You know, the writer yeah. Matt Bays, my friend Matt Bays writes so beautifully about how much work it was to grieve his sister's death from cancer and that he did the work and the work is being in the feelings. And I think there's this concept that you just sort of taught us about and Dara Kurtz, who wrote a beautiful book called I Am My Mother's Daughter. And she was also on the podcast. Her mother died. And then it was like 10 years later that she and mother and grandmother, like 10 years later, she found a bag of letters and she started grieving. I think there's wisdom in that. I don't think that's a problem. I think think that's the way it's meant to be. I think it's so important. Susan David, do you know her? She's amazing. Oh my God, she's amazing. And she talks about false um, positivity, like toxic positivity and the importance of of emotional pain. It's teaching you, it's helping you. You've got to allow it and enable it so that you can learn from that, what your body is telling you, what the sadness and the stresses are telling you so you can move forward. And and I see it with family members that they've sort of put it in a box. And I know, and I see issues that I know are going to arise. But it's really hard to say to someone, hey, buddy, you got to grieve. And they may not be ready to. Sometimes it takes them five years, 10 years, whatever it does. But in order to push forward in a healthy way, yeah, find that time to breathe. You just did a really beautiful sort of like partnering of two things, which is you have to find time to grieve and people have to find their own time to grieve. So when people come into my office, they're usually suspecting at this point that it's time for them to grieve. And it could be because they're having dreams and it could be because they're having somatic meaning in their body responses. 
I always just sort of trust the wisdom that like when it's time, it's time. And, and I say that fully appreciating that not everybody gets to their stuff and some people just carry it around and carry it around and it gets funky. When we're talking about how do we educate people to grief, there's this in grief, there's this partnership between it's a fingerprint, it's unique, it's yours and sort of knowing like, well, it might be time for you. So there's like a personal attunement, right? Yeah. And, and I think desperately, and I wish I could go and, and, and somehow put a magic cloak on them so they would start the grieving or not start, but get, get into the grieving process because I think they're carrying so much pain. I can see it on their body, on their behavior, on their sleeplessness, whatever it is. And I know it would help them ultimately, but they're so afraid to go in there but don't you think part of that is because they don't know what the in there is, right? Yeah, like I, I, maintain, I maintain that nobody would ever come into therapy if they understood what I was going to ask of them when they came in. Don't let that scare you. But what we do in therapy is very different than what it looks like on television. It's, you're not just coming in and complaining about your mother-in-law. We're taking energy. We're asking which part of it do you hold and are you responsible for? And we're trying to see if we can shift it so it doesn't land in your system in the same way. One of the things that is really important to me on this podcast is look, okay, you cried. What else did you do? What are the other activities? Because people are like, well, Megan, I didn't really grieve. And I'm like, what does that mean you didn't grieve? And how do you define grieving? So I, what I would say you've already told us is that high functioning and supporting your family and making sure that you didn't lose a practice and that everyone didn't fall apart was part of your grieving. And when I say grieving, I mean deciding, making a conscious moving forward instead of I'm going to go to a ranch resort and leave all of this here, that that was part of your grief process. Mm-hmm. But tell me about the active grief. Cause to me, that's dissociating from grieving that's functioning, but it's still a grief process. What was your active grieving? Has it been writing? Has it been singing? Do you go to a grave site and have yeah. a conversation? Like it's what do you place. do to be um, in, the, to be in the grief Well, with the energy? I cried, I screamed, I drove in my husband's convertible car late at night and Did screamed. You? Have you seen that music. modern, yes. have you seen that modern last That was me. I was like, hello, that's uh, me. That was exactly me. He had a car. It was his baby. It was a convertible. I never really drove it until he passed. I was going to sell it. And then it, it really was you him part of him every time I held that steering shift thing I was holding his hand it was it was magical I met with a group of widows weekly and we tried all kinds of tapping and meditation and all kinds of stuff yoga for me was huge because I needed to release and in yoga I definitely it was yoga became huge for me for a long time I hear that a lot huge it was meditative it was crazy I prayed for a year I I with each of my family members that's part of what we do in our religion and I did that for a year which was not easy but it got me out of the house every morning and with other people I wrote a lot I studied a lot I have changed personally as a human so much I had to actually 
learn to not feel guilty that my growth was on the shoulders of my men's death. And that took a long time. That was a huge, huge lesson for me that took a lot of time for me to get past. Reading has been really hard. So I read tons of articles that books are just so hard for me to get through. I I actually picked up one that I'm going to try to read now because we're in lockdown. Yeah. But um, very few. And tons of rock. Oh, I walk. I walk daily for hours listening to podcasts. I try to be in nature. That's huge. I cannot begin to tell you how big that is. And if someone would invite me to their cottage on a lake, that would be the biggest thing for me. Thank you for, for answering that question, because I know there are some people out there that are like, oh, okay, well, those are things, you know, generally that, that I could try when I'm working with someone who is moving, sort of shifting from that acute sort of stunned grief into some more of the active, I need to move through the feeling grief. I I literally have a menu where I'm like, just anything on here that seems possible, let's try it. Because most of us don't know how to grieve because we haven't done it before, but also this is the first time they're looking at these things and thinking of them as grief. And sometimes I use creativity as another way of, you know, cooking is creative, gardening is creative, crocheting is creative, coloring is creative, painting is creative, that being able to say there's a lot of ways to sort of define creativity and you might love to cook, but you would never crochet. There's one is not better than the other because they create different products. The process is what we're looking for. And it also depends on the grief. I mean, my mother is, is an artist. That's what she is by trade. When her mother died, she couldn't paint again for about 10 years. Yeah. When my, who came first, when my father died, my mother you know, she was like 90 years old, went downstairs and created some of the most beautiful, glorious masterpieces she has ever created. And then my brother died and she can paint again. It, it's just like, I, I can't explain it. And the stuff she painted when my father died was not dark. It was white and bright. And you would have wondered what's going on there. But I know she had a, you know, they had a tremendous love for each other, but it was kind of curious, the color she was picking. I, but that's the word, right? If, if we can be curious about the process of grief and assume that everyone has to grow their own process for themselves and to sit back and just be interested without judgment and encouraging, I, I know that we are wired to sort of heal this process. I also know there's a whole host of us that have been helpers and sort of like the waitresses in our lives. So that any stopping and saying, what do you want to drink or eat is a hard question for me to answer. So how are you going to grieve feels impossible if it doesn't mean I'm going to help my children or I'm going to help my, you know. That's part of society's issue too, I think, because we don't talk about death and grief. We haven't taught our children how to grieve. That's right. So they don't know, you know, I mean, my daughter was in my home when my husband died the end of May at Christmas time, I sent her away for a week because I needed to grieve and I couldn't do the grieving I needed to do in front of her. And maybe I should have, 
I probably should have, mm -hmm. because she constantly said to me, you know, I'm worried about you. You're not, you know, she was an adult. She was in her yeah. mid-20s. I'm worried about you. You're not exhibiting the way I expect. And I probably made a huge mistake because I didn't teach her how to grieve when time comes again for her to grieve. But that's society Maybe. because society taught me I'm not supposed to. Maybe. I mean, I, what I would say is it's very easy to have regrets and feel guilt around anything having to do with grief, because I think those are sort of the shadows. The pain is underneath where you're sort of like, well, if I had done it differently, then it would have turned out differently. But I also yeah. think, you know, I also think like there was a reason why you instinctively did it that way. And that who's to, who's to say that doing it in front of your daughter wouldn't have traumatized her. I mean, I, I have a lot of this with my own kids of like, I did a podcast episode with them because I was so overwrought when my mom died and I immediately felt such guilt and really, I mean, I still battled the guilt, but I knew even as the things were happening that I was doing things that I just really believed was going to traumatize my children. And about a year later, we did this podcast episode and the things that I thought were going to traumatize them, they don't even remember. Like my, the things that I thought were the most amazing, yeah. and natural, they don't even remember what they remember is the most traumatizing was a fight I got in with my sister. Oh. Like I yelled at my sister and they'd never seen me have a fight with my sister before. But to me, I'm like, what are you talking about? That was run of the mill. We fought our entire childhoods, but they had never seen that before. So I'm not trying to take you out of your guilt or anything. I'm just saying. <laughs> We can't, we can really only do the best we can do and understand that our job isn't really to preserve other people. It's to you know move the energy the best that we can and survive the difficult processes. I think with our kids, we always want to protect them from pain. I'm not sure that's always our job. So, you know, and, and I'm not always sure that's better for them. I just think that, you know, in the olden days we gave birth and we, and we died in our homes. That's right. That's now right. it's super clinical. It's a way no one sees anything. And I think that I instinctively, you know, from what I've learned in society thought, well, I need to be a good parent. A good parent means being stoic and being strong. I mean, it took me six years to finally talk about being lonely i live alone in my house that used to be a home, you know five people i'm right. all alone through covid i'm all alone and it's still hard for me to say those things yeah. so those are all societal judgments right because we're not supposed to feel that right not, and yeah, interesting right. i wrote a whole thing which got a lot of attention i was on the news i was you know all over about the holidays and how to help a friend who's grieving during the holidays. And I specifically wrote on it, it doesn't matter if it's the first month or the 10th year, that yep. friend is grieving. Hmm. Do you know we're back in COVID now, lockdown? Not a friend calls to say, hey, you're all alone, how are you doing? People just have to learn. And, and you know, the ones that read what I wrote said, oh, we never knew those things. But if you don't, you know, it's like marketing. You have to tell them again and again and again and again. But also, but also, particularly in COVID, and this is, you know, this is my little tap dance, 
is everybody needs to be listening to a podcast. I don't care if you have somebody who is grieving. Our job is to shift this the way that we shifted our ability to see, you know, gender and sexuality across the spectrum. Everybody needs to be picking up a book because we have an unprecedented amount of grief and loss. There are not enough therapists. I have a line four months long to see me right now. We, there are not enough people trained to do the take your 50 minutes and go behind the closed doors. We all have to do it. So how do we reach? This is my biggest, I think about this all the time. My background is marketing. My background is public relations. I am so fascinated with the things you're saying. How do I, I think about it all the time. How do I write something or or create a documentary or whatever that will interest society in a topic they don't want to hear about. We've well, done it with so many other things. How do, and this is the only, the only taboo that everyone's going to face. Yeah, that's right. We'll all be grievers. It doesn't matter if you're a ballerina and I'm a Exactly. And it doesn't matter if what color you are or what sexual orientation you have. It just doesn't matter. We will all grieve. You know, sometimes I feel the way you're describing it, which is sort of like that urgency of like, oh my God, how do I get through to people? And other times I feel, I feel, wow, what an interesting time to be, you know, I'm not faking that this is what I'm interested in and is my passion and my calling. This is what I do all day long. What I sort of more feel is I don't need to look for the eyes. I just need to be available because the tide is coming in. If people are not paying attention now, they are going to be paying attention. And my sort of hubris about it is like, if how I'm talking about is helpful to you, awesome. It doesn't need to be me. It's the work that I'm in service to. And I really believe that we have to have a class like my middle schoolers have about puberty. This is my thing. I think it needs to be in the classrooms and I, I like college level. Let's just start there. Oh, I would that, start way lower. But, but we got to start somewhere that people would agree on. And there are a lot of people out there that still think we're supposed to protect children from grief. So fine. Start with the 20 year olds then. I don't even care. Let's start somewhere. Core curriculum. Any one of us could write it. It's not even hard. I would love for it to have some of the bio stuff so that people could be like, oh, okay, well, the reason he's sleeping so much is not a problem. It will likely lift within eight weeks. If it doesn't, then we should call his mom. I think that's and super important. What I do a lot is I lecture corporations. So where's the money? And I think that the people who are making the money who are suddenly, you know, I worked with a company last month and every single one of their core offices in Asia had someone that they would define as a pivotal leader have a loss in their family, direct family member lost to COVID. Every one of their office managers, they were like, we don't know what to do. And so what I said was, and I've told the story before, tell me what you're doing. And they were like, well, you know, we send like a fruit basket (laughs) kind of thing. And we send a card and I'm like, how does that feel? And it was like crickets. And I was like, listen, we're not just learning how to grieve. We're learning how to support grievers. How does it feel? And the HR director was like, it feels awful. That's the same thing we send executives like at Christmas. It's, it feels awful. Horrible. And 
in a very short span of time, what this company decided they wanted to do instead, which in COVID, you know, maybe this won't be as impactful, although I got a note from one of the offices and said they had done it, was to offer their hotel points to family members who need to come in from out of town to stay in a hotel. I literally wanted to give them a standing ovation. They were like, that doesn't even cost us a lot of money. That feels so much more impactful and better. And there, and that came from a story of a woman in the group who said, actually the worst thing about when my partner died was all the people who expected to stay in my house during the funeral. That was the worst part of it is that people expect because they always came and stayed in her house. And so she had to host people at this. And part of it was, you know, these offices are kind of rural. They're not in a big city. And the guys were like, well, what we should have done was offered a hotel an hour away and a car service to get them to and from. That became the thing that they wanted to do. That wasn't my goal. We barely touched things and they immediately understood. I mean, that story that you told about your brother cutting your bushes, you didn't see it maybe, but it made me teary because that is how it should feel when you are supporting someone you love. Is you should be able to offer something that is true of who you are and where you're at. Yeah. And, and you I should, can tell you a huge list of what not to do. That's right. Oh my right. gosh. Yeah. Right. And those are also helpful lists. But the thing about those lists, oh. about the thing that everyone always said that everyone did when my mom died was say, like, oh, she's with your father in heaven. And I mean, even now I can't say that straight face because that causes me so much pain because I don't believe it. And so what it felt to me was like, people were like, you like to know how I soothe myself about this sad thing and you can't have any. And so I had to say to people, you got to stop saying that to me. Right. It, it's so painful. Can you just like tell me a memory of or something else? But I don't want to say to someone, don't say that their person is in heaven because other grievers that I've worked with, when I say, what was the thing that really felt the most healing? They, felt good about they it. will say anytime someone reminded yeah. me that my mother was in heaven. Yeah. That's, sure. and that's the kind of information yeah. that feels so complicated yeah. and you are trying to support someone. You're mm-hmm. like, well, on one list, it says to do it on another list, yeah. it says not to do it. And what I believe is core at the work is who are you? What would you like to offer? What feels authentic to you? Mm-hmm. And yeah. if it's to be deeply spiritual, just check in the same way you would say, should I bring you a casserole? Just yeah. check in. Yeah. Is spirituality helping you at all? And if they say yes, then say, I keep thinking of your mother in heaven. Is that the right thing? Does that feel good to you? To yeah. be kind of attuned. There's a class in my mind, it, I teach it to executive leadership teams now. And I can tell you, it's really, really powerful. And people ask over and over and over. I've just decided to do like a brown bag lunch one where like, it doesn't even have to be all the same company because you could just come and listen to me talk about this. And then I think I've always said the two areas where I think people have to learn more about how to deal with grief are at school because then they grow up with it and they learn it and it becomes part of their being and corporate because, well, corporate is family for many, many people. And it's a tremendous amount of hours of your life. And people, one, don't understand that you're obviously that your, your workload is going to diminish in some respect, but also even what to say when they come yeah, and how to say it and, and how to behave and how to treat them. 
I'm pretty practical about it. I mean, I think we have like a captured audience in colleges and high schools, and I feel like we have a captured audience in the workplace. And most workplaces that I work with already do some kind of wellness week. Most of them are already, already have bought in, even if they're not totally authentically bought in, they've already bought into the idea. We should be offering our employees something. And so when I come in, what I say is I'd like to talk to your leadership team, partly because I don't want to be a therapist in that room. I want to be lecturing and I want to be able to answer high level questions that are going to be impactful in terms of how people feel supported. I'll talk to 25 people at a time, but also it's incredibly rewarding because the things that I know clinically and the things that I know personally are not hard to convey. It's not hard to talk about. And so then they are like, wow, thank you for telling me this. I now know these things. It's not, it's, you know, I'm not trying to teach them about like, and listen to one of those corporate ones. I would, I would just be fascinated. I love it. Well, maybe we can do that. Maybe we could do a little partnership at some point because it's really, it is really worthwhile. The gift you have, I can talk about my feelings and how it relates to me. I can talk from a grief educator point of view, but to understand the science of it, I think for me, and I'm assuming other people, is of so much value. When, you know, when it becomes science, it's just another level of knowledge and information that people can't, I mean, you can question anything, but many people won't question and they'll respect and they'll understand. People don't respect feelings and intuitions and, and even a grief educator. It's mostly education built on you know, knowledge and, and feeling, but it's not science the way you're talking. It's true, but I would, what I would tell you is you and don't, I love that. you know, I happen to know a lot of the science and I don't know even what, but you know. the combination yeah. is so amazing. It's perfect. I it love is. It. Well, and what I would say is like, you know, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. You don't have to remember that it's the hypothalamus that does this. You can just, there is a part of your brain that codes memories that doesn't work well when this other part of your brain is enlarged. When I talk to corporations, some of what I say is like, listen, it's not true for everyone, but if you have people that are doing very fine-tuned multi-stepped things or things that require quick word recall, you know, how many, how many grievers have you spoken to who are like, I couldn't remember my sister's name. And I'm like, yeah, well, let me show you which part of your brain that's in and why it's not working. It will come back. Don't worry about it. But it's like a big inflammation that needs to be calmed down. It's like that pregnancy brain. It's very. I mean, really, truly, every person is an expert in their own experience, but your experience is one that most people don't have. Most people do not have that amount of loss in such a short span of time of so many significant relationships. You know, that's really. I have to end it with a positive. I did also have in the same amount of time, well, now we're up to six grandkids. So I lose and gain and lose and gain. And my friends would say, you are living the highest and the lowest possible, which also made it very difficult to have some of those children because the bittersweetness of it was very difficult. But But, you know, the positive thing is if you allow life to continue, there is, there always is positivity. There always is. That's right. And if you do the grief work, then, because what happens if you're, if you're avoiding 
the complicated, hard feelings is you can't, it's, you know, it's like a, it's like a doorway. Like you can't just block out the bad feelings. You also block out the good feelings. So if you want to be able to be in the joy of things, just also saying, that's why I'm doing the work. I'm doing the work so that I can allow my body and my mind to experience the threshold of joy. I mean, that's how we go. That's amazing. It comes from this whole idea that we have this sort of threshold at which emotions are able to sort of resonate and be in our body. You just and explained so much to me. I can't begin to tell you. Look, there's your therapy. You got it right you in the last nugget. My, like, blew my brain. I, yeah. If you think I of emotions explained. as these little like bugs, like we use emotions and feelings interchangeably, but actually emotions are just these quick little electrical currents that buzz through our system and they cluster and they become a feeling. And the feeling is really our interpretation of our emotions. It's the thoughts that we have about all of these energies. And if I'm dissociating from hard energy, I don't want to feel that my body can't be like, Oh, I'm going to keep the purple, but I'm, I'm going to get rid of the green. We don't have that level of sophistication. So if you're dissociating, you're dissociating from all of it. Wow. So I had a, one grandchild and one daughter married within a, like a year. Yeah. And I could not deal with either properly with the proper emotions. And then I had other grandchildren and other children get married while still, you know, knowing it wasn't the same. I was able to deal with them in a much more positive way. That's fascinating. Yeah. So my hunch is those two at those different times, you know, dissociation is this gorgeous tool that we use to help us not get overwhelmed. And so we just sort of check out and people are like, oh, well, you know, I spent all this time watching Netflix. I'm like, that's fine. Netflix is fine. We can dissociate with all kinds of things. There are some things like alcohol and drugs that have this secondary problematic thing that can happen if we do it too often. But our body has this whole natural dissociation thing that it does with the vagal tone, with its nerve system. And so my guess is your vagus nerve, which is the one that sends the messages down into the body and up that it, you know, it was a little dulled because you were trying to survive a tsunami of feelings. And if it let it all in, it was going to be too much. And so your system had this wisdom, but the, the sort of bummer side effect of that is that you don't get the good stuff either. Right. And you have society saying, but you should be happy. You should be happy. You should enjoy. You had that. You should, should, should. And I was like, wow. Yeah. Thank you for that. See, that's the kind of information that's. I know. I see. I love, and I love these I love these talks because I always, I always take away, you know, so much from them. There's so much information from the trauma field that we could be partnering with the grief field. And for whatever reason, we don't do that very readily or easily. So, you know, that's a little bit my soapbox. Great. If I can take some of that information that is true and bring it over into grief and loss and sort of say, of course, that's how you were. There was wisdom in your body. And it doesn't mean you loved one daughter or one grandchild more than the other. It just meant that's where your system was at that time. Kind of like you ate more at one wedding than you did the other because your body was more hungry. It's not good or bad. It just is. I'm, I'm grateful that that can be helpful. I have loved this conversation. You are a complete delight. And I have a hunch that you and I are going to cross paths, but we're definitely going to have a little tirade about what's going on with sex in the city. So I will, I'll, and we can just do that on an Instagram live. So people really can look up for that. 
I'm raring to go. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time on a Saturday. I really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to introduce you to Susan Kendall from Evolve Beyond Grief. She has suffered multiple losses in a short span of time and was so gracious to sit and talk to me about her wisdom in terms of what she understands grievers to need and how our culture is lacking in grief education and to just share her personal experiences. I had a lot to learn Um, You'll also hear her dog in the background. I assured her that we as a community did not mind barking dogs. So bear with the recording and thanks so much for being here. Remember, I'd love it if you go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you've been listening and you like the podcast. It helps other people find us um, sort of in their algorithm. Thanks so much and welcome.